Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, COVID on the Brain. In this episode, we will be talking about the short-term and long-term effects of COVID-19 on the brain. My name is Nagin Harabian, and I will be your host for this episode. And joining me today is my colleague, Kinza Nain. Hi, Kinza. Thank you for joining us. And again, it's my pleasure. I would also like to welcome our guest speaker, Michelle, who will be sharing with us today their experience with COVID-19 and their thoughts on the journey of recovery. Hi, Michelle, and thank you for being part of our podcast today. Why don't you be- we begin by telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm Michelle. I'm 25. I'm turning 26 in two weeks. Hi. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it'll be my second birthday in a pandemic. Um, but I am originally from Nicaragua. I was born in Nicaragua and I came to the U.S. when I was like around five um I lived in Miami for most of my life and then for college I went to Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts um and there I studied um psycholinguistics um yeah I graduated college and I was very like ambitious in college um I created the psycholinguistics major but then I had a double major so it was like three majors um, joined a lot of extracurriculars, you know, and then I graduated college and I worked for a tech company as a data analyst and then as a linguist um, with artificial intelligence, like, or home assistant devices. Um, and so kind of like the, the voice that we heard on Zoom, like that kind of AI or natural language understanding. Um it was a pretty fast-paced job, I'm not going to lie. Um, I think there was an element of burnout from my end, from not really taking a break between college and then going straight to work and working for really intense um, positions. So Michelle was diagnosed with COVID-19 in early March 2020 when the pandemic first hit the U.S. So why don't you tell us about your path to getting diagnosed and what that was like for you in terms of the symptoms you experienced? At the time, I was also traveling a lot, like I was going to New York every weekend, um, just a lot, like a, a, a toll on my body. And I like to joke, but it's not really a joke. I think it is true that I had COVID before um, in November 2019, because mm-hmm. what I experienced then um, were the same symptoms that I experienced when I actually got COVID. And there was a test result to tell me it, but I remember it was the same symptoms. And I went to the doctor because I had gotten pneumonia the year before. And so I went to the doctor and they checked me for pneumonia. I didn't have pneumonia. They checked me for the flu. It wasn't any type of flu. And I remember the doctor saying like, oh, there's like a new strand of the flu going around. It's probably just that, you know, take some medication, et cetera. And I remember like this, the, it was like a really bad lingering cuff, but a lot of the same symptoms and that lasted for like three months. And I finally started feeling better in February of 2020. And then um, we were hearing cases at the, at that point in the U S about it being in China in Italy. And, and so <laughs> I remember being at work, uh, I had a really long commute where I worked um, and where I lived. 
And so it was like a three hour trip every time. And I think I was just like, my body was tired um, from still what, whatever it was that happened in November to January, my body was tired. And I remember being in an office, the office was like open space and somebody was visiting from Seattle. And I remember because the office is open space, um, it's just a Petri dish really. And I think around that time, it's when cases started popping in Seattle where it was a hotspot. And I remember that's when people started panicking and going to buy all the toilet paper in the world. Um, And I remember I went on a trip to Costco and that night I felt a little sick. I felt, I had like, I felt feverish. I felt a little tired, uh, sore throat, Um, but I didn't really pay attention to it. I was like, oh, I'm just stressed, you know, because there's something going on in the world. I didn't understand what it was. Um, So that was like March 13th, I believe. And I had just been in the office like a couple of days before that. It was the last time I was in the office and I took public transportation. So really the pinpoint of where I got COVID, I don't know, but most likely it was at the workplace um, because later retroactively, I found out that the person missing from Seattle was positive. Um, So for, I think that was like one of, that's like, the most pressing point for me. Um, And I felt feverish, sick-ish for a couple of days. And then the symptoms started to get worse. Um, I had a fever of 103 that wouldn't break. And I really didn't know what to take to bring down the fever, but it lasted like a week and a half, which is longer than any fever should last. (laughs) And then I remember getting a lot of headaches. Um, that sounds really rough. I'm sorry to hear that. Could you describe your symptoms in greater depth and tell us what you think makes contracting COVID different than anything we've seen before? The fatigue is really what concerns me because I, it was fatigue beyond anything I had experienced before. Um, and then I started developing a cough that got worse and worse. Um, and it was shallow breathing. And at that point, I think we all knew that there was a pandemic. We were like in lockdown in the U.S. and Massachusetts specifically. And I remember the turning point for me was actually, um, I went to the bathroom and I tried to take a shower because I was like, I need to get out of this bed. It hurt to get out of bed. Um, And then I remember my vision just went blank. Everything was white. I couldn't hear and it just felt horrible. I was like, it felt like an out of body experience. And I thought it was my blood pressure that was slow. So I don't have a blood pressure machine, but I took my, I have, I'm not diabetic, but I always have like the glucose test strip mm-hmm. just in case. Um, and I was like, maybe it's my sugar. My sugar was fine. Uh, before that, I think it was on the 21st or on the 20th of March where my symptoms start to get bad. Um, I call my PCP and I'm like, I'm, I'm having the symptoms. At the time we thought that people my age couldn't get it. <laughs> um, and he's like, honestly, you should go get tested. And at the time they were only having drive-through tests. Mm-hmm. 
and I don't have a car and I can't drive. Um, so I actually had to take an ambulance, which in the US, it's scandalous to take an ambulance to just go get tested. But I didn't feel comfortable taking an Uber or exposing anyone because um, I didn't have a surgical mask around. And I got tested and then I got my results five days after that. So I think it was on the 20s. Um, 25th or 24th or something I got the test results and they came back positive so I was like I knew and so I went to the bathroom the day after that passing out experience happened and then I panicked and called my PCP again I'm like hey this just happened I don't know what to do but I don't feel okay like what do you recommend I do and he's like I can't do anything you have to go to the ER so then I called another ambulance and actually, at that point, I had to call a state because it was at those very early ages where you had to call a state to report a case or something. Um, and then they walked me through all of that, got the ambulance. Um, I went to the ER and there they had me under observation for like an hour and a half or so. And I remember the doctors just coming in and out of the of the room, taking blood samples and they kept asking me um, if my breathing had been this like shallow for a while. And I was like, yeah, like for two weeks. Turns out that my breathing rate was at 50 breaths per minute or something where the base should be like 20 or something. Um, but they were concerned about it because it wouldn't come down from the 50. And they were worried of the effect it would have on my lungs and on my heart. Um, and I had an EKG done which showed some abnormalities. And look, I guess luckily in 2017, I had an EKG done. So they were able to compare and saw that it was just, it was not, it was abnormal from the 2017 one. Um, and eventually they transferred me to the ICU because they're like, you need to be under observation. My oxygen was like at 79%. Um, so they were worried about it. And I was in the ICU for a while. Um, for a couple of days, I wasn't on a ventilator, um, thankfully, but I remember the doctor walking me through if I had to be put on an, on a ventilator, you know, there's a risk that we could puncture something and then it would be fatal. And I was like, uh, that was scary. Um, my family was in, in the state, so they were in, still in Miami. Um, so I didn't have like my parents able to make decisions for me. So I had to ask a friend if they can make those decisions for me as a health proxy, which is also kind of daunting. Wow, that sounds incredibly intense. What was your symptom treatment at the hospital like? The ICU stay was basically a blur. I don't remember much because um, I was just trying to get sleep, but I couldn't sleep. But I remember getting oxygen and then slowly feeling better. And I think the ICU state was the most emotionally taxing one for me, um, especially seeing people that came into the ICU because my room was the first one in the hall. So I saw every patient come in and my nurses were working like 15 hour shifts and I just saw how tired they were. And so I think for me to see all of that, to like take that in, I didn't process it at first, but I remember I kept asking the nurse like, you know, you don't have to tell me who, but like, are the people okay, the people that came in? 
and they're like sadly a lot of them have passed and so I think for me like I don't know who these people were but seeing them come in then knowing that they wouldn't leave was a lot um and so that part was emotionally taxing um then I went back home finally and it was two weeks of recovery after that just to give my body some time I the cough was still there I'm still contagious so isolation like not leaving my room at all um, was also hard because I love being outside um so that was hard and then after the two weeks I went back to work which I think now that I look back I'm like I should have waited longer to go back to work um but my job gave me like a two-week grace period and that's when I started realizing like that soon after being in the ICU my body wasn't ready my mind wasn't ready I just wasn't ready to go back to work and feeling like I had like to perform at the same levels that I was before um and slowly over the months, I started noticing more that the fatigue wouldn't leave. I no longer had a cough. I was, you know, fine. I was able to walk around um, my neighborhood, go on jogs here and there to like strengthen my lungs again. But the fatigue was like the part that was the hardest because I think also it was informed by a lot of insomnia. I couldn't sleep for like a month it was hard to fall asleep to stay asleep and it would kind of like balance between not sleeping and sleeping too much mm-hmm. so it's like my body didn't know what was going on still um but the the fatigue was horrible it was hard to focus at work um and then I started noticing a lot of things with my speech and my attention span where as a linguist like syntax and grammar are important to me and as an editor specifically and my boss never really commented on it but my coworkers would say like hey we're noticing like more mistakes in your writing and to me that was terrifying because that's my livelihood um and so it was almost like a weird like aphasia of sorts um where I'm like I would forget words even now I still have remnants where I forget, like in my mind, I see what I'm going to say next, but then it doesn't, my mind and my mouth don't communicate. Um, And that was part of it. There's still fatigue now. Um, I think less so. Now, maybe it's because it's spring and there's sunshine and I'm just happier in life, but um, there is an element of that. Given the fact that you were still facing lingering issues after your initial infection, did you ever try to seek external clinical help to assess their perspective on the matter? Actually, how I learned about the podcast was I was referred to a neurologist, um, Dr. Mukherjee, and we ran some tests, like cognitive tests, and they they do see something that's been happening with other COVID patients where it's like our um, attention spanner. I forgot what it is exactly, but the cog- there's like cognitive differences from what they would assume was our baseline. Because they're like, you're smart and we can tell you're smart, but in tasks where you should be performing above average, you're actually below average. So something's like not adding up and like word retrieval is one of them. While that was definitely unprecedented, 
Are there any other biological or psychological differences you noticed post-COVID? I went to the cardiologist and the cardiologist, the cardiologist kind of looked at me and asked for family history and was like, your heart thing is normal. And I was like, okay, even though everyone else is like, that's doesn't add up. Um, so I think even navigating the medical field is interesting because at first, I think earlier in the pandemic, all the doctors were like, come here, like we're going to run tests, do this. But I think everyone was just trying to find a cure and, or like a solution and trying to publish a paper. <laughs> Because it's so new. And like, this is something that just happens. Like, I understand, you know, it's something new. It's something worldwide. Like, we want to be the first and whatever. Um, but my question was like, after the pandemic, after there's a vaccine, after the rates are low, like, what happens then? Do you still care about the people that were affected long term? After you publish a paper, do you care about the patients and what it means? And like, what does this mean for um, like COVID survivors emotionally, mentally, like, is there a system in place to follow up? Um, and it's like, what are the long-term symptoms? What are the long-term effects um, that we don't know? I am so sorry that you had to go through such a horrific experience. I mean, your story is incredibly powerful. And again, I'm so sorry. I just think just to add to what you were saying, I don't know anyone my age who really took it seriously when the pandemic first came to be. What about you, Nagin? Yeah, we thought that we were invulnerable. Like, we're young, we're healthy, nothing is going to happen to us. But then more and more stories like yours came out about people in the ICU who were our age and were healthy, but they were dealing with these serious complications. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the big brain fog that you experienced Especially as a linguistic expert, I think you're kind of uniquely qualified to talk about how you notice differences in your speech patterns and things like that, just so people can get a better understanding of what it means to be dealing with these complications, even after a year of your initial diagnosis of COVID-19. Yeah, so it, how I describe it is how it sounds like, you know, there's some mornings you wake up and there's just fog, like you can't quite see beyond like the fog right in front of you. So I think for me, brain fog, that's kind of what it feels like. There are mornings where I wake up and everything is just like silent in my head. And it's like just a blanket of like heaviness. Um, Cause I'm like, I know because I keep my agenda next to me, what I have to do that day. But I don't really remember what I have to do that day unless I wrote it down. And I used to be such a multitasker. I'd be like, yeah, I know I have this meeting. I didn't really use calendars before. I didn't really use planners because I was able to keep it all in my head. But it's as if my head had like this, like update, kind of like our computers update, our, our phones update, and your memory files just go blank. That's what it feels like. I'm like, uh, what am I supposed to do? Sometimes I walk to the kitchen. I'm like, what am I doing? And like some, like earlier, I literally had to write, I'm like, eat at 12 p.m. to keep some sort of normalcy and schedule. Otherwise, I would just forget or I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to go and back to bed and be like, I don't want to do it. And especially when you're working, 
it's hard when you have deadlines coming up and you have to be very meticulous about what you write down. And sometimes I would forget that I had to write things down on my on my agenda, like on my planner. Um, and in terms of speech, I think for me, it's completely messing up my syntax is something that was alarming for me. And I'm curious to see what studies find about speech in particular, um, because word retrieval is hard for me nowadays. Like a mid-sentence, I'm talking to a friend about something and I'm like, oh, what, what's the word for that? And it's so hard for me to like get the word. And so I have to describe the thing to them. And they're like, oh, you mean this? And I'm like, yeah. And it's something simple as like, I don't know, like the dishwasher. I'm like, where, where you put the, and even then when I'm describing what a dishwasher holds, I'm like, where you put the, and I want to say cups, but it right. takes like a couple seconds for me to be like the cups and the dishes. Um, so it always feels like I'm a little behind in what I'm seeing in my head. So I'm, I just wonder where the disconnect is between like the neurology of it and like the speech part of it. No, absolutely. I think it's incredibly concerning to be seeing memory issues as a result of COVID. For memory to be affected for people of our age group is very significant. We've been seeing some reports of depression and cognitive disorders. Uh, Nagina, I think you were telling me about a paper recently that uh, covered this. So brain fog is actually not a medical term, but it refers to a set of symptoms such as cognitive impairment, confusion, and poor concentration that we're often seeing in patients with COVID-19, especially those that have central nervous system involvement. Um, And this is one of the many symptoms that people with long COVID are currently experiencing. Actually, a recent study from the scientists at Oxford University states that one in three COVID survivors experienced neurological and psychiatric symptoms in the six months after infection. But again, I don't think that people really talk about this age group when they talk about those long-term symptoms or people with, you know, a pretty clean medical history or people who haven't had any types of complications. Yeah, so kind of building up upon that, based on the timeline that I got from you, Michelle, you got COVID pretty early on in the pandemic and the lockdown and everything, it was pretty early and new to you. And there was a lot of unknowns back then. So from what I remember during that time is just that COVID is a respiratory disease. It's not going to have a systemic effect on your whole body. Uh, and after, well, thankfully you recovered and you come, you came home and everything. And then you started noticing these systemic lingering issues Did you know that there is a neurocognitive effect to recovering from COVID-19 or was it something that you were totally oblivious about and you were just wondering, why is this happening to me? Yeah, so I also just thought it was a like respiratory thing and I'm like, yes, I, four months after I was still coughing up God knows what, it was quite disgusting and I'm like, uh, um, so I thought at first, And I'm like, you know, I'm 25, like, yes, I am fat, but I'm pretty healthy overall. Like I don't have, I didn't have like, I wasn't immunocompromised. Um, They thought I had asthma in 2019, uh, November, 2019. But I'm like, you know, maybe it was just COVID 1.0 for me, which makes sense. Cause I did read if you had COVID and then you get it again, it could be worse. Mm -hmm. And that was just my theory. Um, 
but for me it was um yeah I thought it was like oh the first things that I'm gonna recover are my lungs and then you know like I won't have a fever and it'll be that like I'll be happy again I'll be like running and doing things and then when I started experiencing like more symptoms that I didn't have the words for that weren't like visible in like my body I was like what is this about and I thought it was just oh I'm just depressed you know maybe I'm just tired um just annoyed at the world and why how we got here and I thought it was that but the more I started talking to other people who also had COVID that I knew um we were like yeah like I struggle with this and it started becoming a pattern so I think for me it was as much as I love reading medical journals I didn't want to read medical journals or anything that was being produced then because everyone was just saying like oh, it was focusing a lot on deaths. And I'm like, it was just too much for me to be reading at the time. Um, And so, yeah, I think a lot of it came up from conversations with other people and being like, okay, there's a pattern. On Twitter, people discussing um, their experiences and being like, you know, I can relate to that. And it's like, I thought it was just me, but seeing like the more people talked about it, the more I was like, oh, okay. So it's not just me, It's, it's a thing apparently. Um, yeah. So after you saw that conversation on Twitter, you decided to reach out to your primary care physician and then a neurologist? Yeah, I told um, my PCP, I was like, hey, I'm experiencing these things. And he said, okay, I can refer you um, to a neurologist who's studying uh, the effects of COVID on the brain. And that's how I ended up talking to Dr. McCurgy. And we did an MRI and my MRI came back fine. Um, we only did the brain MRI, not the spinal cord, um, which I was curious as to why not the spinal cord, I, just for me. I don't know. I'm like, hey, if it's an MRI, it's an MRI. Um, but the MRI came back fine. So there's like no physiological aspect of my brain that shows why I would have this. And then Dr. McCurdy was explaining that one of the theories is um, that it happens at the blood vessel level, um, which won't come up on an MRI. And, but it's something like COVID brain is a thing apparently. And that's when I was like, oh, okay, I see. Um, They also did find like mild sleep apnea at first. And then I did like an in-clinic study where it was actually hypersomnia. I don't know if they're related, but yeah there was a lot of stigma surrounding it and it was the blame was placed on the individual who's dealing with those struggles and causing the sense of isolation and it wasn't until people reached out to the greater community and realized that this isn't happening to just me and that kind of touches on what we've been seeing is that COVID isn't creating new issues it's shedding light on old issues and showing them in a much deeper way. I also wanted to ask about what your experiences have been with physicians in the past. We've seen discrimination in the field of medicine, but it's kind of exacerbated by how disproportionately different marginalized populations are affected by COVID. And that's why you had experienced or seen anything like that during your visit to the hospital. Yeah. So during the visit to the hospital, um, I remember it wasn't so much like, so that's the thing. Like, I think knowing that there's like, medical bias like for so many things whenever I go to the doctor I try to be my best advocate because I'm like I know no one's going to be unless I am for myself 
And I tried to encourage my friends to do the same for them. Like if your doctor just don't want to test you for something, be like, can you put it in the EHR that you don't want to check this for me? Because for me, it's like, I've just seen it over and over where people don't get diagnosed or or they get misdiagnosed because the doctors have like the perception of how they look or where they're from. And for me and the hospital, my PCP and I have like a pretty good relationship about that because he knows I will be like, hello, (laughs) do this for me or note it. Um, And he really like, he also was older, so he can't see me when I was like sick. Mm -hmm. So he'd go to the ER. Um, But in the ER, I remember telling the doctors everything. I'm like, even if I'm oversharing, I need you to have all of the facts. And sadly, I've also trained myself to almost speak in like medical terms at times so that they think I know even though I'm just pretending that I know so that they take me more seriously and it's sad that these are the hoops that you have to go through but there are tactics Um, that you have to use to get exactly exactly and so at the hospital I didn't really experience that much um like pushback from the doctors but most of my interactions were actually with nurses taking my like vitals and everything and a lot of my one of my nurses was, um, I, I think just, I, he looks so tired and just, I don't even know how to describe this, but it was just like beyond grief. Be, it was just like numbness. And I'm like, like, are you okay? Me in the ICU, I was like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm just like, you know, a nurse and it's, I'm doing a 15 hour shift. It's my 15th hour with you right now and I was like wow so he was obviously tired and he did 15 hour shifts like every other day which I'm like that's a lot um and I think the toll that it took on him and he was like a black nurse which I wonder like if other nurses were going through something similar and I I remember the dynamic which actually kind of annoyed me was we were talking about something and then the like the head doctor came in and that doctor was kind of dismissive towards the nurse's concerns and my concerns or to the nurse's concerns because he was like trying to be an advocate for me and the doctor was just dismissing things and I was like this doesn't feel right and so I told the doctor I'm like this is what I'm experiencing this is what I need from you like you know um so that was like one of the only like dynamics that I saw in the hospital itself um and then after that it was more like in the neighborhood that I lived at at the time had one of the highest rates of COVID in Boston in the city of Boston and I wasn't shocked because a lot of the people that was a predominantly like black and like brown neighborhood in Boston and also a lot of essential workers live there so I'm like it makes sense to me why there's more why there's a high rate of COVID cases because when you look at the demographics like people that go in like have more exposure um yeah so that's from that aspect like what I noticed the most um and it just happened throughout I think at least in the U.S. focusing on the U.S. it's like you see a lot of the hot spots in the communities that were affected were proportionally like disproportionately like black and brown Um, And then also like a lot of like the Asian hate that came after that. Um, 
and seeing the economy just kind of like crumble for a lot of like Asian owned stores speaks a lot. And yeah. And I think also for people with disabilities, it's like everyone was afraid to get it or they're like, Oh, that thing's not real. It's like, Oh, it only like kills like old people and like people with disabilities. I'm like only, only exactly. Okay. So there was just like, there's just so many layers. Um, Yeah. So I have a follow-up question, Michelle. It sounds like you've had enough experience with the medical community even prior to the pandemic. So when you mention things like the senior doctor being dismissive towards your concerns and actually the nurse's concerns, is that a pattern that you've seen before, before the pandemic? Or was it something new that could be maybe attributed to fatigue or burnout from the doctor's perspective? Um, I think in general, I have a very complicated relationship with the medical health industrial system personally. And I think it's because a lot of, most of it has been informed from when I was young. Um, My parents don't speak English. So a lot of the times, like I took on that burden of being interpreter for them in medical spaces. Um, And my mom was like, my mom's diabetic and has a bunch of like health issues. And growing up, like whenever we would go, I think specifically to doctors who didn't speak Spanish or were white or both I would see more of that dismissiveness because they're like oh you know you're an immigrant lady like you probably are eating burgers at home and like you're fat I'm like my mom does not eat burgers I eat burgers my mom does not my mom eats really healthy she's just diabetic and I'm like you know and I think also talking about like the diet of our culture What's interesting, because I'm like, what is that? What makes your version of healthy food healthier than like my people's? Obviously, we've lived long enough to be like our food sustains us. Um, We like we eat beans, we eat like corn based things. But I think historically, like our corn wasn't, you know, manufactured into what it is now. I think since being like young, I've always experienced like doctors like dismissing those issues. And I think personally for me as well, like I have vaginismus and I didn't realize it until I was like, until like two years ago where I went to um, a gynecologist and they're like, this is a condition. You can go to a pelvic floor therapist for it. But for the longest, it was like trying to get a pap smear would hurt so much. And I remember the solution to that was from, I got a referral to go get a transvaginal ultrasound, which I'm like, if I already struggle with past smears and what mind, and am I going to go get a transvaginal ultrasound? It doesn't make sense. And I'm not a doctor. Like there, what? <laughs> um, and I remember telling my doctors, like, it just hurts a lot. And they're like, yeah, it's an uncomfortable procedure. And I'm like, no, but it hurts. Like, you're not listening to the pain. I'm like, do you just not believe that I feel pain? And it wasn't until like, I told him like, there's, I think there's just something wrong or something's not adding up for me that it took a lot of pushback to be like, this pain is beyond what I think should be a normal pain. And then it was like, oh yeah, you have vaginismus. And I'm like, it took five years of me pushing back to be like, this is not normal. Um, and changing doctors to realize that. 
So I think it's, and I think also for, like, I also have PCOS. So a lot of the times it's like, oh, the cure for PCOS, go extra, go lose weight. Well, thank you, Michelle. This entire experience has been incredibly eye-opening for us as a team. And hopefully by raising awareness about these issues and from having uh, people who've dealt with COVID such as yourself come forward and talk about these things, we can make some kind of lasting difference in face of these um, incredibly, as every email I've ever gotten says, tumultuous times. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you all for having this, this space for people to talk and, you know, sharing information. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in for this amazing discussion. We hope that we were able to give you a unique perspective on long COVID from a patient's point of view. We thank our guest, Michelle, for sharing what their life was like prior to hospitalization and the challenges of being hospitalized early in the pandemic. For more information, please visit our website, www.covidonthebrain.ca. Stay safe. Mm -hmm.